Welcome to the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream. This is where we talk about the public health prevention topics of the day. This is episode three of this new podcast. For the first few episodes, we're focusing on tobacco taxes. We have several national experts lined up over the next few weeks, and we are very excited for today's guest, Del Monte Jefferson. So now, our host, Jill Hudson. Well, today is a good day. I have the honor of talking tobacco taxes with Del Monte Jefferson from Necton. And uh, this is a part of our ongoing series for Upstream Public Health, where we are chatting with national experts and exploring a list that we came up with that's called Five Things You Should Know About Tobacco Taxes. We'll talk about the list a little bit later in today's podcast. But uh, first of all, I want to welcome our guest, Mr. Delmonte Jefferson. Hello. Well, hello, Jill. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, a, it's an honor. Absolutely. So, uh, Delmonte, can you start with telling us a little bit about your, your organization and yourself? What's... You're calling from North Carolina today, right? Yes. Um, our organization, NAPTIN, uh, is an organization that facilitates public health programs to benefit people and communities um, of, of African descent. And so we have been in existence just about 20 years now. We were founded in the great state of North Carolina, and that is where our headquarters is still located in North Carolina. Um, we, we have contracts um, and we have cooperative agreements from the CDC and from other organizations and institutions to help build capacity of different communities to be able to effectively advocate and be a part of the whole policy process when we're trying to change policies, whether they're raising taxes or creating smoke-free policies or banning the sale of mentholated tobacco products. We just want to make sure that marginalized communities get their voices heard as well. Um, I've been doing this work now for about 20 years. Um, I've been doing tobacco control, um, and it doesn't seem like that long, but that's a long time. Yeah, it goes fast, right? Look at it. Yeah, it goes by real fast, and... um, I've, I've, wor- I've worked at the state level and in North Carolina and in Georgia and in Louisiana, and now I'm doing the, the same type of work um, at a much higher level at the national level. So um, I guess because it's also something that I'm passionate about that also makes the time go by pretty fast as well. Well, it sounds like we are in good hands today talking to you about tobacco prevention issues and tobacco taxes specifically. So in our state, on the other side of the U.S., in um, sunny, sunny, it's sunny today, sunny Oregon, um, we've been, you know, having some beginnings of statewide debate around whether or not we should increase tobacco taxes. So Upstream Public Health really wanted to provide some additional narrative and, and really like have an opportunity to get input from folks around the country who are experts in tobacco prevention, experts in tobacco taxes, 
to help people think through some of the issues around tobacco taxes. So let's start with what what kind of a stake does Napton have in tobacco taxes? Like, why, why do you guys care? Well, well, we care because, I mean, we all, we all know, and I'm, I'm assuming, of course, you guys have done your homework. I know increasing the price of tobacco through higher taxes. That is, according to who, the single most effective way to encourage tobacco users to quit. And, and to prevent children from starting to smoke in the first place. And all this really is about how do we stop kids from starting to smoke and not creating that whole next generation of addicted smokers um, for the industry to prey upon. So uh, the best way to do it, the most effective way to do it, is to raise the price of tobacco. Um, um, We we found time and time again that, that our communities and the public really understand this. And they get this. They know that, you know, if you raise the price, and, and many have said, smokers have said, you raise the price, I'll quit. You know, if it gets too yeah. high, I'll quit. And so um, this is a strategy that works. It's worked time and time again. The only reason, in my opinion, that states don't raise taxes is because of lobbying efforts done by the industry. And, and someone has a stake in the game and they choose not to raise the taxes. But um, our politicians know that if you raise the taxes, you're going to encourage users to quit, and you're going to prevent youth initiation. Yeah. Um, it, it's absolutely uh, so well put, the way that you just said that. Uh, uh, clearly laying out the case here. And you're right, it's a pretty predictable at this point, absolutely uh uh, studied over and over and over again the effect that tobacco taxes will have on adults, on youth, on economies, and really on families, making them healthier. Um, so are there any particular issues for people of African descent that um, it, that are that connect them in a good way or in a bad way to increases in tobacco taxes? Well, I, I think, again, um, marginalized communities, there is an argument that always comes out, oh, you know, you're really punishing um, folks with um, lower income. They're going to have to pay this higher taxes to smoke. And that's not the case because, again, once you raise the taxes, um, people are going to quit. They're going to say it's not worth it. When When, when they actually start looking at how much you know, you're spending on a pack of cigarettes a, a day or a week or a month. When they start looking at how much it costs, they do realize and say, hey, this is not worth it. Yes, uh, nicotine is an addictive product. Yes, we know that. However, you know, having income in your pocket is also somewhat addictive as well. So folks <laughs> like to have income. They don't want to spend all of their income on tobacco. And so, you know, it doesn't impact um, marginalized communities more. In fact, it's just the opposite. It encourages marginalized communities to quit. Yeah, and from what I hear you saying, and I've heard this as well uh, throughout a long time in my life working in tobacco control, people looking for those 
opportunities that come in the way of a policy or an increase in price because most smokers um, or tobacco users want to quit. Um, So increasing that price is often a marker for somebody to say, okay, that's, that's the day. That's when I'm, when I'm going to quit. Um, what, what kinds of other supports do you think need to be in place for people in order to have that tobacco tax really have the right effect for marginalized communities? Yeah. Your, your efforts have to be comprehensive. They have to be coupled with things like smoke free legislation. Um, it, you know, you restrict the places where people can smoke in public. You have those restrictions in place. You you make sure, of course, that the cessation efforts are there, that for those who say, okay, you know what, I need to go ahead and quit now, that you've got adequate cessation help, that you've got access to the quit line, that if you need NRT as part, nicotine replacement therapy, if you need that, that pharmaceutical help as part, Part of your efforts, you make sure that it's available, and yeah. and then the other part of that, you know, especially for, um, for your priority populations, is to make sure that you've got bans on the sales of those products that these communities are smoking. Um, mentholated tobacco products or flavored tobacco products need, to, you know, we need to make sure that we've got bans on the sale of these, as well as the increase in taxes as well as other places where we can't smoke, and as well as making sure that our station help is there. So it's not a silver bullet. Taxes aren't going to solve the entire problem, but need to have this wraparound. And I just want to restate the things that you said. We want to make sure that there's quality programs to help people quit tobacco. Uh, So much, we know so much about how to help people quit tobacco, and it is really, really hard. But if we're going to increase the price, we owe it to those people to do everything we can to help them quit tobacco for life. So uh, totally, totally down with that. And then also having these wraparound policies so that every time somebody leaves the house, they're not faced with other smokers, that it's not easy to smoke in uh, bars or restaurants or casinos or what have you. I think there's no doubt at this point we've made a tremendous amount of progress, um, but in more progress in some places and some states than others, and have really seen the effects of that. And then you mentioned flavor and menthol. So tell me more about why that policy should be something that we talk about when we're talking about reducing tobacco use um, and wrapping policies around tax increases that'll really help communities and families be healthier. Let's talk menthol. Well, let's talk menthol. Let's talk menthol and, and, and how it ties into this whole tax thing that we're talking about. Uh, first of all, let's, let's be clear. Um, there is some level of menthol in all tobacco products. Okay. All tobacco products. And so there's some level. Some of it doesn't have the characterizing flavor of menthol, but all tobacco products contain menthol, which is part and partially why, you know, back in 2009, when the whole uh, Tobacco Smoking and Prevention Act came out, how come menthol was included? Because it is so vitally important 
to the success of and, and the, the, the lifeline of the tobacco industry because they could not afford to have menthol banned. And so they agreed. They said, yes, we'll, you know, we'll ban all these other flavors, but leave menthol alone. Let us keep menthol. But wait, now, let me stop you right there for a second. How come there's menthol on, I mean, why is it so important? To the to the product formulation for tobacco companies. Oh well, again, let's don't forget what menthol does um, and how come they put it in every tobacco product. It mar- masks the harshness of that product. Yeah, without menthol yeah. and some other something in there, it would be so terribly um, hard to smoke. Okay. That most people would say, "Forget it. I don't want anything to do. I'm not going <laughs> to start smoking." And so menthol, you know, once you once you can mask the harsh taste of tobacco, it's going to allow for deeper inhalation okay. of the toxins and the chemicals, right. but most importantly, the nicotine. Right. So it's going to allow you to get the nicotine in your system. It's going to allow you to become addicted. And 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 this is this is interesting. You know, eighty five percent of African American adult smokers, and ninety four percent of African-American youth who smoke, they use menthol products. Now, now, you find very similar numbers among other party populations, among Asians, among American Indians, among Latinos. All these populations that smoke, you know, they, they smoke mostly menthol. And by menthol, but, but you mean reality, those products that have a lot of menthol flavor, that are labeled those products menthol. products that are characterized. Yeah, okay, those products menthol. that are okay. characterized as menthol, that's okay. correct. And, and But not only these party populations, here's your thing, Joe, youth, youth smokers, young folks who begin smoking, most of them begin by smoking mentholated tobacco products. Now, again, this is something that the industry has known for decades. They know, they knew that the menthol is going to mask the harsh taste of it. They know that menthol will, will allow people to start smoking and be able to smoke without getting turned off by smoking. Uh, and, and so this is how come menthol is so vitally important to the tobacco industry. Um, and so, yeah, so when you talk about raising taxes and you want to raise taxes across the board, you want to get menthol and you want to get non-mentholated tobacco products. And if you start raising the taxes on these mentholated tobacco products, then these young people aren't going to be able to start smoking, not, not just cigarettes, but to start smoking in general, um, by using, say, the mentholated tobacco products when they start. So menthol becomes an extremely important part of this equation. And, cause, and, the, other, and the other part of this, you know, studies were conducted um, decades ago um, with African-Americans and asked them a simple question. If you couldn't smoke menthol, what would you do? And predominantly, the African-Americans said, we'd quit smoking. We wouldn't smoke anymore. We yeah. can't have our menthol because, again, uh, it, uh, cigarettes by themselves, they have a very harsh taste. They're yucky. Without, yeah, they're, they're, they're yucky. That's, that's a good way of putting it. That's a scientific way. They're yucky. And, uh, <laughs> but once you put the menthol there, you know, uh, folks are able to smoke. Yeah, so uh, from what I hear you saying, the tobacco industry, uh, tobacco companies knew this. And uh, for lots of reasons, and you mentioned the uh, Family Smoking Prevention Act that passed in 2009, uh, it was very controversial and disappointing at the time that flavors in cigarettes were quote-unquote banned at that time. So 
There's no longer cherry combustible cigarettes, um, although you can get flavors in a lot of other products, including little cigars. But menthol was exempted from that flavor ban, and the health inequity that could come from that has always been sort of striking to me. Um, so in taxing, uh, we want to make sure that we're definitely taxing what you're, you know, not doing anything where uh, menthol cigarettes would be taxed less. Uh, we want to tax all products um, and really sort of drill down on those flavors because that's what's getting kids into the market. Is, is that a fair characteriz characterization of what you've said? Yeah, that, that's definitely, um, that's definitely on the spot. Um, the, the, it's very interesting too, as you, as you were talking about that family act where it said, no, you can't, you know, you can't smoke flavors, but it's okay to smoke menthol. Um, and, and we're not going to touch cigars and cigarillos and you can do whatever flavor you want of those. Well, it's just not, it's just funny that coincidentally, and I'm being sarcastic when I say that, that our priority populations are marginalized youth. They're smoking cigars, cigarillos, and they're smoking the flavors. Yeah. They're smoking menthol. Yeah. And so the very products that our marginalized youth are using are the very products that were excluded from this ban and from, from what happened. Now, let's, let's, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. You know, last year, um, our commissioner, um, who's soon to be gone, our uh, soon to be ex-commissioner, came out and we were very, very pleased when they said, oh, we're going to ban menthol now. You know? Oh, so that, you mean the commissioner like of the FDA? The commissioner of the FDA, yeah. 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 Okay. Scott Gottlieb, when he said, we're going to ban menthol. Mm -hmm. And everybody was happy. You know, but one thing that they were missing, you know, when they made that announcement, and it was, it was striking. I, I, I couldn't believe it almost. We're going to ban menthol. However, however, they said, in e-cigarettes, we're going to leave menthol and the other flavors in e-cigarettes because, you know, their rationale, you know, oh, it's helping some people to quit. Well, doesn't that sound so, how can you make the same mistake twice, Jill? You <laughs> did this back in 2009. You banned all the flavors except menthol. Then you came back, what, 10 years later, you said, okay, I'm going to correct it. We're going to include bad menthol. We're going to ban all flavors, including menthol, however, in e-cigarettes. That little however clause, that little however clause is going to bite them again. Yeah. You can't exclude menthol from e-cigarettes, and you can't include, exclude these other flavors from these e-cigarettes. You've got to make this a sweeping policy if you're going to be effective. And so I, ju I just thought that that was very interesting that, you know, we made a 10-year mistake, the same 10-year mistake twice. I love the way that you framed that. And I'm actually really revved up right now on, on tobacco control policy. I'm inspired by your words. Because if you don't ban these flavors in e-cigarettes or somehow get a, get a handle on that, and we know that e-cigarettes are now um, being picked up by kids in you know, really, really large numbers. It's shocking. We're all very, very worried about it. And we also know that kids are migrating from electronic cigarettes to combustible cigarettes and probably signing themselves up for a lifetime of addiction that they will deeply regret later. 
you know, it's the whole it's the whole story again, and we know better at this point. We know better, so um, it it really like restirs my passion to uh, continue to have that conversation, and also when we're talking about taxes, to make sure that even though e-cigarette manufacturers may sort of edge into this water and try to say that their product is potentially helpful, they, um, they are not helpful for kids who have never smoked, for sure. And also, they're not cessation products. And if e-cigarette manufacturers wanted to help people quit tobacco, they could go through a process at the FDA and get those products approved for tobacco cessation and sell them that way. So, and, and there's a, there are good ways to quit using tobacco. So um, I, I, I thank you for talking to us about not repeating history. Um, are there, are there, um, are there, when, when we're talking about the tax being, or a tax, a tobacco tax, potentially affecting marginalized or lower socioeconomic communities more than others. You've talked about them quitting. Um, you know, one conversation I had uh, recently is that it's really hard to quit, and somebody, they just might not be able to do that, and then they just have to spend more money on cigarettes, and um, they might they might buy cigarettes instead of food. And I thought about that a lot. And I actually, I just want to get your perspective on that. Well, um, again, what you're talking about is rhetoric that's driven and funded by the tobacco industry. And so they're going to continue to put out that type of rhetoric about, oh, this is going to impact marginalized populations more so than others. Uh, you know, and what they do, you know, that rhetoric when they usually put it out there, and 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 believe me, this rhetoric is coming from, and it stems from the industry, you know, and it might be centered around a legitimate concern that that African American communities, other marginalized communities, may actually have, you know. So this, you know, it might stem around the fact, yeah, you might spend your money on this as opposed to food. Well, that, that's not going to happen for people who have children and people who have those responsibilities. They're not going to buy a pack of cigarettes as opposed to buying food. But the industry will make you think that this is what they're going to do. Because it, say if there was one person that did it, but a hundred that didn't, they will say, oh, this is what they're going to do. And again, and they're going to put that out there. You know, these assertions that we get... And the horrible part is about that is uh, when they start making these assertions, they'll go and find some person in our communities, um, one of our civil or civic right leaders, to get up there and promote their argument. Mm. It is horrible that it's sickening when I hear you know people in our communities saying arguments that are arguments that were started and generated from the industry. Uh, you, you were talking a minute ago, you know, you were talking about the, um, the whole, um, um, the cessation process that if these e-cigarette manufacturers wanted to legitimize what they're doing, they would go through the process. And that would be true, except for there's one thing, there's one thing about this. When we look at who is starting to take ownership of the e-cigarette market, 
it happens to be the same folks that are promoting the combustible tobacco products. Yeah. And so when we start hearing these arguments about taxes, again, the bottom line is, well, who's going to benefit the most from us not raising tax, from us not taking this most effective, most proven way of reducing use, of increasing cessation, who's going to benefit the most by us not raising taxes? And that one industry yeah. is the tobacco yeah. industry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, well put. I, um, I, I think that it, that trick of taking um, something that we all care about or that many people care about, which is individuals and families living healthy lives, not further impacting people who are poor or marginalized or making anything worse for them. The tobacco industry pretending and tricking people into thinking that they actually care about people of African descent um, after they have clearly demonstrated, it's been clearly documented that they've targeted these communities, that they have lied to them, that they've addicted them, that they've paid civic leaders to try to trick them. It, it is pretty, it's pretty appalling and um, uh, sometimes hard to, hard to stomach, like you said. And also, I, I got to say, I think of people anywhere are making a choice between tobacco and food, um, what we need to do is get them more food. Uh, or help them find, you know, not yeah. not uh, not make sure they can afford tobacco, um, but get them more food. So, uh, anything else that that comes to your mind uh, for you, your organization, uh, working on tobacco taxes? Well, you know, the the only other thing I would say is that what you guys are trying to do in Oregon is right on spot. Um, let nothing way you from that and and even if there's difficulty uh for whatever reason with you know your process this year then put it on your agenda for next year and have those coalitions know that this is something that we're going to keep striving for because again uh the coalition there your organizations you're about saving lives and if you want to save lives you got to raise taxes you got to raise taxes you got to make sure you've got smoke free acts um that that's protecting people from smoke and, and let me let me just add on to that when I'm talking about smoking. We we talked earlier, Jill, that there are a lot of states that have smoke-free policies, comprehensive smoke-free policies, and that's all well and good. However, there are still too many people, too many workers that are exposed to secondhand smoke. Too many workers, and when we're talking about those workers that are exposed, whether they're in a, a restaurant or a bar or a casino, those workers may be those that are part of the party populations that we're trying to help. Yeah. And those workers aren't protected like, say, the general population is protected. And so we we got to start looking at our smoke-free air laws. And so in addition to raising taxes and having those smoke-free policies, making sure that the smoke-free air laws are protected protecting the workers because that's who's that's who's suffering the most right now. Um, yeah. the workers in these in these places. So 
you know, I've seen several states and um, they've, they've had comprehensive laws and everything looks good on paper. However, you still got workers that are exposed to secondhand smoke and that is not good. So, Mr. Jefferson, we, we understand um, that tobacco prevention uh, it works. We understand that evidence-based tobacco prevention, it's one of the most well-documented, well-studied uh, public health efforts ever, very successful. Uh, the Surgeon General has said, we know how to end the tobacco epidemic. We just have to have the political will to do it. We also know that there are communities who are disproportionately affected by tobacco disease and death. What's getting in our way? Why aren't more states, why is it so hard? I mean, why aren't more states doing the right thing? Why is this so hard in Oregon? Well, I think that the, um, the tobacco industry, they are a well-oiled and well-funded machine. And they've got lobbyists where you wouldn't believe they should have lobbyists. And so, you know, you might look at Oregon and you might say, oh, we don't have laws of tobacco lobbyists here and we don't have that industry influence. I, I, I guarantee you that they're there. And I guarantee you if they're not there, then there's someone there with their hand on a speed dial that can make a phone call and get those lobbyists there. Yeah and bring just the right amount of money to the right politicians that are responsible for making these decisions. And so, you know, I, I hear about, you know, the Surgeon General talking about the willpower, um, but there's something also to be said about the money power mm -hmm. that's driving a lot of this. And that money power seems to be winning out right now. Um, we've got to have politicians that, that are willing to invest and that are willing to take their chance on putting the policies to protect the public's health. We've got to have politicians in place, you know, and that's got to be a platform that they stand on and that mm -hmm. we hold them accountable to, that we, we elect who we need to get in office until we get that person that's really going to be accountable to the public's health. Well, I said it at the beginning of our uh, discussion. What a great way to start a Monday. I had no idea. This has been um, a conversation that uh, I'm going to definitely be thinking about and relying on for the rest of the week. Uh, your your knowledge and ability to put these concepts into uh, words is absolutely uh, so helpful, and I, I really appreciate your time here with us today. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up today? No, I just want to say thank you all for taking up this issue of raising these taxes, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Have a great day, and we're looking forward to talking to you later. Thank you. This has been the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream, with your host, Jill Hudson, and today's guest, Del Monte Jefferson. For more information about Upstream Public Health, please go to upstreampublichealth.com. To join the conversation, visit the Upstream Public Health Facebook page at facebook.com slash upstream public health.